Good morning, and good singing unto the Lord. Well, take your Bibles, and for this Sunday and next, turn to a little bit different place, the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. John 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't need to tell you that our world is in trouble in a lot of different ways. Whether it's health or conflict or economy, uh, there are anxieties, there are fears, there's brokenness everywhere. And when I say the world is in trouble, what it really means is that our neighbors, our relatives, our friends, are experiencing the troubles of this world. Our scripture today is really simple. John communicates to us that people need Jesus. It's the solution. It seems too simplistic, but it's totally true. But Jesus Christ came into this world because of all of our brokenness, all of our problems, all of which were caused by mankind's sin. Today and this week as we study uh, in this little brief series in John, we're looking just at the first chapter and we're going to come across uh, focusing next week especially on a little phrase, come and see. Three times it's found in the early chapters of John, come and see. It's a little phrase that uh, you'll probably see on some of our materials, uh, printed materials going forward. Because it's really what we're trying to communicate to our community. Come and see who Jesus is. This is what we offer. This is what we have that so many in our communities do not. We know who Jesus is. And as we study John 1, especially today, it may be that there will not be one new truth that you will discover. You know all of this. In fact, I really hope you already do. But this is what our friends, family, and neighbors need to know about Jesus. The first, in verses 1 and 2 of John 1, is that Jesus is the eternal God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John, the apostle, knew Jesus quite well as a personal friend, humanly. Knew him as a friend, but this is not John promoting Jesus, his friend. This is John, decades later, laying out the staggering truth that people need to know about Christ that Jesus, the man, is and was the eternal God. Warren Wiersbe, uh, speaker, pastor, writer of a commentary on the entire Bible, we have it in our library at church, summarized John chapter 1 with this little phrase, God is here. God is here on earth, John was saying in our study today. 
So John begins with these words in the beginning. Uh, you'll probably recognize them if you know how the Bible starts. Genesis 1.1 is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can't go back any farther than that. So John is summarizing all of time from when there was nothing, when there was no time, there was God, and God was in the beginning, and so was Jesus, because Jesus is the eternal God. And so this is a, assuming we would understand that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the one God. Jesus is described with this term, word, the word. Kind of a strange word to describe Jesus. Why would he choose this? We know this is Jesus because by the time we get to verse 14, it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Clearly a reference to God becoming man, the, the doctrine of Christmas. So we know we're talking about Jesus, but why would he use this term word? Words re reveal, our words reveal who we are. Our words reveal what we're thinking. And God wanted us to know who he is. God wanted us to know what he is thinking. And so he came in person to do that, to reveal himself in person. Many of you use and have used, especially these last couple of years, Zoom or some other video platform to communicate. Perhaps it's the next best thing to being there, but the best thing is being there. And this time, as God wanted to reveal himself, he says, I'm going to be there. God would reveal who he is. The knowledge of God is available, all that we need to know, in permanent hard copy. And he made sure that we had that. But this time, God says, I'm going to come in person. This time, it wasn't an angel revealing who God is or what God said. It's not a prophet God came in the person of Jesus. The Word, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God there together. I and the Father are one, Jesus said. And the Word, Jesus, was God. That little phrase, by itself, should settle any doubt or discussion about the nature of Jesus Christ, the man that he was truly God. If we only had that, that should be enough. The word was fully God. And yet that is the very phrase, the very issue that all false teaching and false teachers hotly deny. This is where they have a problem. In fact, the, the simplest way generally to identify false teaching or false teachers or false religion would be to ask this very specific question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is fully God? And if there is any quibbling, deflecting, denying, it's false teaching. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, have their own translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. One of the key elements is what they do with this phrase in this verse. And they translate it like this, the word was a God. They have to deliberately mistranslate the grammar of the Greek language to do that because the way it's constructed, the sentence, is that the word was this nature, God nature. 
The word was and is God. Theologically, grammatically, that's exactly what it's saying. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. He is eternal. Jesus said about himself, before Abraham was, I am. That I am already is a God statement from Exodus. I am who I am. But I am eternal, so though I'm living as a human being many years after Abraham, I had existed before him. See, it's not only John who is claiming that Jesus is God. Jesus claimed he was God. John 5. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We could try to explain that any way we want to, but the Pharisees understood it one way. By, by saying God was his father, they said, you are claiming to be equal with God. Or John ten thirty three, where they attempted to stone him. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. There's no question that Jesus was declaring, claiming, demonstrating that he was God. And because he claimed to be God, the stakes are raised about his nature. If he claimed to be God and he was not, he is no longer a good man. If he claimed to be God and he's not, he's a liar. And so there is no, no in-between place where you can say, well, I don't believe he was God, but I believe he's a prophet. I believe he is a good man. No, he's not a prophet or a good man. He's a liar because he claimed to be God and he's not. Or he claimed to be God and he is. I'm sure you've noticed that the world, unbelieving world, tends to object to Jesus Christ and not God in general. Have you noticed that? It's really okay if there's this group of people called whatever, Christians, is fine, as long as they're just talking about God. They believe in God. You know, a lot of people believe in God. There's all these kinds of gods. There's all these kinds of religions, and that's okay. But when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, suddenly there's this resistance. There's this, this tension because what we really are saying to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, is I believe in who the Bible says he is. He claimed to be God. I believe him to be fully God. And suddenly this whole exclusivity is, is part of what we are saying. And that's good because Jesus is exclusive. And John would later say, John 14, verse 6, well, I'll record when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so... It's a claim that says all other religions are false, and that's what the world resists when we say we are believers in Jesus Christ. And so John is laying that out from the very beginning by saying he is the eternal God, and there's just the one God. This truth of who Jesus is is crucial to our witness because we are in a world of people who need the eternal God. Um, there's a lot of fear about a lot of things. And if you boil it down, it's because there is this sense that we as humans are in charge of all humanity. And it's all under our control. 
And so we are afraid of nuclear war, we're afraid of pandemics, we're afraid of, of uh, global warming, we're afraid of anything that could threaten us. And however true these concerns could be, the worries, the fears are unwarranted for those who have a knowledge of the eternal God who is in control. And that is who we are because of our relationship to God through the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. People need Jesus because they need an eternal God. And then to realize that in the person of Jesus, he demonstrated, God demonstrated his eternal love for us through Jesus so that we could be with him forever. That's what finally solves every problem. That we would be eternally related to God, connected to him forever with him in heaven because of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the eternal God. Verse 3 tells us he's not only eternal, but he is the creator of all, which logically and theologically follows. Through him, that's the word, Jesus, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's pretty clear. That's like everything was made by Jesus. Just as we know God the Father created Genesis 1-1, the Spirit created, Genesis 1-2, Jesus Christ the Son created all things. Cults often will teach that, in, that Jesus is somehow the top of the creations of God. No, he's not cre- a creation of God. He is the creator God. We aren't here today to make the whole case for creation versus evolution, but I can only imagine that John and his peers would have thought it absolutely bizarre to think somehow that everything evolved from essentially nothing. Um, Nothing comes from nothing, and that's the one thing that the evolutionary theory can never explain, is where did the something come from which everything else evolved? Carl Sagan, in his book Cosmos, his word for universe, evolutionary, atheist, philosophical kind of, um, admitted it's nonsense to say that, nothing, that something could come from nothing. For him, the something that always existed is the universe. So he, he actually paraphrased, uh, borrowed, I guess, from us Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting thou art cosmos. So that his idea is that the universe is eternal because he knows something has to be eternal. It's like, it's like he's nipping at the door of truth And yet one huge, crucial step away because it is God who is eternal. It is God who then created the universe. Jesus, our eternal Jesus, created the universe. Why is this important to your neighbors, friends, and family? There's a longing to know where we came from in in every sense. Uh, parents, Parents expect their young children to one day wonder where they came from and you have this awkward, maybe, conversation trying to explain at their level. Teens and adults want to know, where did mankind come from? Were we the result of an evolutionary process from the amoeba to the more complex forms of life to what we have now? Is that really possible, or is there a God? Because anyone should be able to observe this intricate design, this marvelous capacity that the human 
body, let alone the human mind, has to grow, to think, to relate, to communicate, to plan, to provide, to build something, to destroy something, to love someone, to hate someone. That's, that really came from nothing, or there is a wise, mindful, loving, glorious, beautiful God who created all things. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So people all around us are actually longing to know, how do we get here? Why do people search genealogies? That's such an interesting thing. Or Ancestry.com, DNA tracing, or uh, adopted uh, individuals that want to know the birth parent. There's a sense that if I could find my roots, somehow it would give some kind of uh, understanding of the present or even the future. We, we, we care about our heritage, and that's a good thing. So are you teaching your children where they came from? That they were specially created, planned by God, loved, placed in your family, so that they could know the Jesus who created them and someday live forever in, G- in heaven with Jesus. Do, do we realize that this sense of, of belonging that comes from knowing where we come from is what enables us to have the security to ignore the bullies and the critics of life? That there is a place, there is a plan, there is an eternal Savior who made me and saves me. We, we, we as a church and our children's and youth ministries want to help you with that, but you've got them all the time. This, this, is, this is crucial to the, the foundational, uh, emotional, mental, and thus spiritual development of every individual. And it's true of our neighbors. And so if, if, they, if they skipped that step of hearing it from their parents, that's our opportunity. This is where we came from. Our Savior is the eternal one. He is the creator. Verses 4 through 9 tells us he is the source of all life and light. Two favorite terms of John. Verse 4, in him, Christ, the word, Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He's, he's heavy on the metaphor here, and we're trying to understand what it means at this point. We know that eventually Jesus will be revealed as the light of the world. This is eventually about Jesus. But at this point, John could just be coming out of this, uh, the theology of God. Christ has created everything, and so that in, him, in Christ... Every person has life. In other words, not talking about salvation yet, but every human being has life. Maybe pointing to the fact that we have that the uniqueness of human life. We're made in the image of God. We are, able, we are able and every human has this thought that there is a God and that we understand right and wrong morally and we can think about the future. We can think about the past. We can, this unique image of God in him was life. And the life was the light of man. 
The light here could be that Jesus has given everyone what's called sometimes general revelation. Eventually, we're going to talk about, in this passage, special revelation. Special revelation is where we have the scripture and we know exactly who Jesus Christ is and his salvation. But Romans 1 talks about how everybody knows something about the truth, but we have to suppress it in unrighteousness because what is known about God should be known about him from what he made. So perhaps he's he's just kind of starting us out here that in him was life. He gives us the image of God, made us so that we could understand spiritual stuff. And in him was light that we should understand something about God through what he has made. Then quickly he moves to the person of Jesus and special revelation in verses 6 through 9 because that's what this book is all about. It's about Jesus. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself, this John, was not that light. He came as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Now we're talking about two individuals, John and Jesus. But what gets a little confusing is which John? Because John the disciple, the follower of Jesus, is writing this gospel, but he's actually talking here about John, the one who baptized Jesus, John the baptizer or John the Baptist. Because John was the man specially tasked with introducing Jesus before, he began his pub, before Jesus began his public ministry. John the Baptist is humanly, seems a cousin of, of Jesus. So there's a man that God sent to testify about this light that was coming, and now it's very specific. He is the true light that gives light to everyone in the world. So going back to verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not understood it. When, when Jesus first came, he was not recognized. Uh, many people don't recognize the general revelation. Many people don't get it that this world was created and, and there must be a, a knowing, loving God behind it. And so eventually, they need to understand about the true light. In John 9 is the story of where Jesus healed the, the blind man. And when they saw the blind man, Jesus introduced the miracle he was about to do by saying, I am the light of the world. So clearly, John, in John chapter 1, verse 9, is saying, Jesus is the true light. The thing about light is, it always wins over darkness. If this room was entirely dark, and just one of you put that flashlight thing on on your phone, suddenly we have light, because darkness always loses to the light. The people in our lives need the light, the power of Christ to overcome the hopelessness they feel. It's the darkness. The darkness, in a sense, is is sin and all of its effects. And everybody is suffering from those effects. Many times as Christians, I think we're intimidated from talking about Christ because You know, with the neighbor, you can talk sports, you can talk weather and lawns and cars and trucks. But Jesus, that's awkward. In here, it's okay. But out along the fence, when you push away from your cubicle, 
or you're talking to someone over a work lunch, it just, it just seems awkward talking about Jesus Christ. I get that. I, I feel it too. But the thing we have to remember is that everyone is dealing with darkness. Everyone is touched by the darkness of sin. And I think the first step on the path to talking to someone about Christ is to show hope for their darkness. And when we start by caring about their darkness, suddenly we are relevant and Jesus Christ is relevant. Because we are saying, perhaps it's our own testimony of something that God has helped us through in the person of Christ. As a believer in Christ, this is something that, that God has done for me. And, and now you're telling your story about what the difference Christ makes in your life. So caring like Christ is the first step to sharing about Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus did on earth. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all about because he revealed not only his power to do miracles, but that he cared about people that were suffering. And so if we don't care about people that are suffering or show that care, it's like we're, we're, the, the, there is this awkward closed door, if you will, that we can't get through because people want to know we care before they care what we know. And what we know, who we know is Jesus. The true light, verse 9, was coming into the world. And so then it's all about Christ. So do, do all people see this light? We say light dispels darkness, but there's something about this darkness that not everybody sees. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him, didn't acknowledge him. In fact, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he clarifies this is spiritual birth. Children not born of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We're not talking about first birth, we're talking about second birth. Laying the foundation of John chapter 3, you must be born again, born from above. This is a spiritual birth that would put you into the family of God by what? By belief, by faith in Christ. So, verse 10, he was in the world, but they didn't get it. Verse 11 refers to Jesus coming to his own, meaning his own people. This is a Jewish reference. He came to his own people. And if you read through the, the Gospels, you find that in those three plus years of Jesus' public ministry, he spent his time almost entirely with Jewish people. He encountered Gentiles that were there. He took a shortcut through Samaria, but otherwise it was Judea. It was Galilee where Nazareth is and Jesus was raised. But he spent all his time with Jews, essentially. He came to his own, but they did not receive him yet to those who did receive him. And then that would be Jews or Gentiles. The Old Testament was focused on Jews. Jesus focused on Jews. In fact, Paul, as he went planting churches, telling them about Christ, he says, I go to the Jew and then also to the Gentile. So he'd start out in a synagogue of the Jews, and when they pushed him out, then he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. But 
all who received him, he would give the right to be called children of God. So, as people encountered Jesus during those years of public ministry, they would hear what he said, they would see what he did, and they could choose to conclude, I believe you are who you are claiming to be, who you are demonstrating yourself to be. I believe in your name, referring to I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you to be the Son of God. And if they believed in him, in Christ, he gave them the right to be called children of God. Now you're in the family. Now you are our kids. John, John always refers to believers as children of God, not sons of God. He reserves the word son of God for, for Jesus. But he says, you're children of God. You have, you have belonging You know what people are looking for? To know where they belong. Not only where they came from, but now, where do I fit? We, we do that all the time. We, we, go, we want to go to something you don't as much want to go alone. You'd go to some, with someone you know. You, you, you want to fit somewhere. And that's it. We all have insecurities. Amen? We all have insecurities, and... The first place that God, I think, designed to deal with those insecurities is our families. So he puts us in families so that there would be somebody who would know who we are, our faults, and yet accept us. But families are imperfect and dysfunctional to some degree. And so sometimes even the families where we're supposed to have that acceptance is where we don't feel accepted. And, and so we, we all kind of struggle with this sense to belong because families are not perfect. Families, by definition are basically sinners who get married and have baby sinners with the same last name. And at some point, we, we need to accept that. So the struggle to belong is real, and, and you enter your teen years, and so maybe, you know, whatever degree I perceive I'm not being accepted properly in my family, maybe my, my peers will accept me and my friends will accept me. We grow up and belong to clubs and teams and, and work groups and, and hobby groups and... Uh, more sometimes people will join gangs of criminals just to belong or or other destructive behaviors that you have in common because there's this huge longing to belong to someone but no friend gang family can ever fill that need and we come along and say demonstrate for them that we can belong to God and we can be the children of God. There is someone who completely knows you. Knows you better than you know yourself, knows your faults better than you know yourself, and he completely accepts you and forgives you as you are. And it happens through this person of Jesus Christ. We can only imagine the real power of that message. John would write later in the epistle of 1 John, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it didn't know Him. That's our message. That This love is what caused Him to gift us, the word lavish or bestowed. He gives us 
a place in his family. He says, you're, you're mine, you belong to me. It's actually not until John chapter 3 where we learn that the result, the gift of believing in Christ is eternal life about heaven. Because first he says, what you receive as a gift is belonging to the family of God, and thus that means you have eternal life. But let's not in any way ever downplay the significance of someone's desire to belong and to know they can belong to God's family. John uses the birth metaphor to illustrate this. Paul likes to use the adoption metaphor to illustrate it. And you know what? They are exactly the same. Because it's a matter of belonging to a family. And not just humanly, verse 13, natural descent, but this is that God chose you to be in his family by faith. Children is plural. So you have siblings. Your relationship with God is not just one-on-one. Your relationship with God is shared because you're part of a family, the children of God. And so that's what the church is. It's a place where a group of people who have all been lavished with the love of God and placed in God's family get together to meet. And so it's a little taste of heaven because everybody else in this room that has believed in Christ will be in heaven with you. Think about that. We'll be together. So this, this is a sibling thing. You can't pick your siblings. Like that little saying... I smile because you are my brother. I laugh because there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> you, you can't pick siblings. And so we must work really hard at loving and accepting each other so we don't have too many apologies to make someday when we meet Dad together. People need Jesus. People need to be in his family. People need family. People need Jesus because he offers everything. John continues his revelation of Jesus. He's eternal, he's creator, source of light and life. He's the only way to become part of God's family. And he is the one who actually then revealed who God is. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the eternal God became flesh, and it means this, because Jesus was this. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. It's called sometimes in flesh. Jesus came in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. He's the God man, and he made his dwelling. means he actually lived here and and did people's stuff. Because he was, he learned, he had, to, he had to grow as a child, as an adolescent, learn to talk, learn the alphabet. He had to learn about the world he created. 
It's, it's unfathomable to me to try to comprehend how the one who was all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, eternal, glorious forever would voluntarily limit these characteristics of deity to say, I want to experience everything you do, even to the place of being tempted like we are, though in complete submission to the Spirit, always without sin. I want to experience everything you do. He became flesh just like us, and yet, John says then, while he was flesh, and we have seen his glory, and it's God's glory. How's that? Did, did Jesus maybe have that halo you see on some Christian art? No. Did Jesus' robe and face shine? Actually, one time they did. John actually saw that. Peter, James, and John were invited to go up to the mountain where Jesus was temporarily transfigured, and it says his face and his robe shone. John actually saw that, but I don't think that's what John's talking about. Because he's writing to the rest of us. Where, how did people see the glory of God in the person of Jesus? Go to chapter 2, verse 11, just probably a page ahead. When Jesus did his first miracle of uh, uh, the water into wine, verse 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed what? His glory. And his disciples believed in him, put their faith in him. So they saw his glory because they saw him do things only the glorious God could ever do. Water into wine, sight to the blind, healing lame men, raising the dead. They saw his glory. And they also saw then this tra- these tra- dual traits of God full of grace and truth. Now, that, that's a sermon series in itself, right? Grace and truth. That's who God is, grace and truth. Grace, God though he is perfectly holy and abhors sin, cares about people filled with sin. Jesus demonstrated grace, loving sinners, forgiving sin, full of grace, and Truth. So not only this undeserved kindness, but yet never compromising truth so that Jesus would say only that which is true and do only that which is right. So he is glorious and then fully gracious and fully true. Verses 15 through 18 describe how Jesus, how John the Baptist came and testified of that and that he's greater than me. Go down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only Jesus, who is at the Father's right hand or side, has made him known. So John, writing decades later after Jesus has ascended back to heaven, says, Jesus there demonstrated everything about Jesus while he was here, about God's nature here, glory, grace, and truth. What people need, our neighbors need, is glory, grace, and truth that are only available through Christ. People long for glory in themselves, so we try harder to be the best. 
we brag and exaggerate about how great we are. And so we pretty much fail at glory. Grace, we dabble at grace. We, we pride ourselves at how nice we are to certain people. But if we dig down deep, we often see how even in our niceness, our motives are clouded with selfishness. So we don't do so good at grace either. Truth, we claim to know the truth and try to speak the truth, but then eventually we have to eat crow about something we thought was true at one point, and so we don't do so great at truth either, except through Christ. So glory, Jesus, uh, Paul would say, I only glory in what? The cross of Christ. In other words, let's give up trying to be glorious Because our only true claim to fame is that we know Jesus. We know the one who is glorious. That's our glory. And grace, we are not naturally gracious, but if we are immersed in grace as recipients of grace, we actually can partake of that divine nature and show grace to people with their weaknesses, even when their weakness is that they hurt us, called forgiveness. And truth. We better give up trying to think that we will know the truth about all the earth stuff and know that this is the truth we know. This is, this is the actual truth. And let's proclaim that because this is actually what will bring us peace. And this is what we offer to friends and neighbors when we invite them to learn about, come and see Jesus Christ. In verses 19 to 34, which we won't uh, all study, it recounts how then John comes to introduce Jesus. And John's presentation of Jesus was so God-centered, so authoritative, that some people wondered if he was actually the Messiah. John maybe was. Verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Christ. Christ means Messiah. No, I'm not the Messiah. So then who are you? Verse 26. I, John says, baptized with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. I'm introducing him. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So this human being that they will meet, Jesus... I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. It, it's, a, it's a picture of, of the lowest, menial, dirty job. Sandals were dirty on dirty streets. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that for this man because he's God and I'm man. So I, I'm, I'm going to introduce him, verse 28. This happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing And now it comes, now it happens. The next day, John saw Jesus. So Jesus makes his personal entrance into the account of John. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look or behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's eternal He's creator, source of light and life. He make, puts in his family. He expresses the glory, grace, and truth of, of God. He, he, but here's what he really came for. He came to be the lamb who would take away the sin of the world. Take it away. 
He is the Messiah. Verse 34, he is the Son of God. But he is God's lamb who takes away sin. The word lamb to us, you know, you might think of the playful animal with white wool happily dancing in a meadow. But clearly the Jews, as they heard the Lamb of God, had an entirely different picture. They were seeing death when they heard the word lamb. Because they had all, for centuries or in their own life, decades, brought lambs to the temple in this necessary but repulsive act of worship. It was the only way they could be right with God is to acknowledge the sin and judgment of death. Uh, the sin and judgment, the death was, this, was the judgment of sin. That their sin was so serious, this animal would die today. It's a sobering experience as the priest would take their lamb, squirming, do the deed, the animal was silenced. The blood would run over the altar. I wonder how many people turned their eyes away from that scene. And John was saying, John the Baptist, this man, Jesus, is going to end that. Because he was that. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For centuries, God had provided the sacrificial lamb system as a way to temporarily cover someone's sin. So they could demonstrate, I understand I'm a sinner, I understand my sin deserves death, but I'm leaning upon you and your grace that somehow you're, you're forgiving me. But they did it over and over and over and over when they brought their lamb. Because a sinner's lamb saves no one. But now this is not the sinner's lamb, this is God's lamb. And God's lamb was eternal creator, perfect life and light. The lamb of God is perfect and sinless. And he's going to end all this. You know why people need to hear about Jesus and why he is so relevant as we talk to him? Because everybody is struggling with their own burden of sin. between their sin and the sin of others against them. Sin is a lot of darkness. If it's our own sin that we hide, sins that we regret, sins that we're presently entangled in, or whether it's the sin of others who have hurt, mistreated, abused us, there's a lot of burden of sin. And the only solution to any of it is that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died for your sin. He even died for the sin of those who have hurt you. And it changes the picture of life entirely. And suddenly the terms life and light and hope in a dark world take on meaning. So what we're saying is, come and see. Come and see, because this is the Jesus we are offering to you. Ultimately, we're introducing the one who came to take our penalty. 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so shortly after we read this, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that's the Lamb of God on the cross, taking the penalty of our sin. And there's one response required. It's not a work, it's not a thing you do, it's not a thing you earn, but it's a response of your heart that whoever believes in him shall not perish eternal judgment in hell, but have eternal life with the Savior who loved us. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, through Christ. God is seen as so judgmental. And our message is, yes, God judges sin, but God loves you. And he didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. That's our message. He took your place. Put your faith in Christ. Believe in his name, who he is. Chapter 1, verse 12. Believe in his sacrifice. He paid the penalty for your sin. And you'll be in his family and you will have eternal life. So, come and see who Jesus is. Let's pray together and prepare for a time of remembering his sacrifice for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love that you lavished upon us that we would be called children of God. And that is what we are and that is what our world does not know because they don't know you. And so we pray that you would help us to be very clear in our own understanding, very intentional in how we would Uh, imitate and care for others like you did. And then very clear in what Christ offers as our sacrifice, our payment, our penalty for sin. Thank you, Lord, as, as we come together around the bread and the cup that we can rejoice in what you have already accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen.